Today we are in Acts. Let's pray for our time in the Word. Jesus, we love you. We thank you, Lord, for your Word. We thank you for the way that you use it to teach us, to challenge us, to transform us. And God, we pray that you would do all of those things today. We also, Lord, want to um, lift up all of those who are suffering right now in Florida uh, in the aftermath of Hurricane, Hurricane uh, Ian, we ask God for just your grace and strength to be upon them. We pray, God, that those people who have lost homes and businesses would be turning to you and not away from you. God, we pray that you would give the, the churches down there wisdom on how to come alongside uh, their neighbors who have been just affected by this. And Lord, we also just thank you for the, the work that you did at Movement San Diego last night. And um, Lord, we just uh, ask that you would, the, the seeds that were planted, the work that was done, that it would take root and uh, cause um, just transformation to happen here in North County. And so we give you this time today in Jesus' name. Amen. Back in the days before men were allowed to be in the birthing room when their wife was, you know, giving birth, they would wait out in the lobby or out in the waiting room. And, and there were three men whose wives were all pregnant in the hospital, a hospital that was in Minnesota, and they were waiting for their wives to give birth. And so there are three of them are out there in the waiting room. They didn't know each other, but they were, you know, kind of interacting because that, that common, you know, ness of, hey, our wives are about ready to give birth. And um, after about 30 minutes, the first nurse came out and said, Mr. Smith, congratulations, your wife just gave birth to two twin boys. And he was all excited. He goes, that's amazing. That's incredible. I work for the Minnesota Twins. (laughs) About 20 minutes later, another nurse came out and said, Mr. Jones, congratulations, your wife just gave birth to triplets, two girls and a boy. And he said, that's amazing. Wow. I work for the 3M company here in Minnesota. Well, when the third guy heard that, he got up and started to leave the waiting room. And they're like, going, bro, hey, where are you going? And he goes, I'm getting out of here. I work for 7Up. <laughs> <laughs> Births are amazing, though, aren't they? The, the, the highlights of my life have been the birth of my three children and now my three grandchildren. So amazing, so precious, new life. Well, we've come here to Acts chapter 2 where we're going to see one of the most incredible births in the history of births. The day that the church of Jesus Christ was born there on the day of Pentecost. And it wasn't twins, it wasn't even triplets, it wasn't even seven, it was 3,000 souls that were born into the family of God. Let's read here beginning in verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. 
And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. And then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? How is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and those dwelling in Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia and Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. And so they were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? Others mocking said, ah, they're full of new wine. In other words, they're drunk. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words, for these men are not drunk as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. In other words, it's only 9 a.m. And I know all of you who used to party are thinking, so? (laughs) Right? (laughs) But then it says, but this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And I want to pause right there. Because what follows this is a sermon that Peter is going to preach, where he is quoting from the prophets, and then he gets to the point where he really starts preaching about Jesus, and who Jesus was, and that Jesus was the Messiah. And he gets to the climax of his message, and basically saying that Jesus was the Messiah, and you crucified him. We're going to look at that sermon in its entirety at a later message, but I want us to skip today to the result of the message there in verse 37. It says, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. And then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day, about 3,000 souls were added to them. As we come here today to Acts chapter 2, I want you to know that this chapter is very, very important. This chapter is huge. It's huge in regards to what the church is. It's huge in regards to what the mission of the church is. It is huge in regards to what the message of the church is. And chapter 2 answers questions for us, like how did the church come into being? How did the church carry out its mission and proclaim its message? This This chapter answers the question of how did the church survive, and not just survive, but, but really thrive over the ages. And the answer to those questions is really, really simple. It's one word, it's really, it's one name, and it's Jesus. And chapter 2 reminds us that this was a work of God and not man. 
The world was literally turned upside down. The society there in the first century was radically transformed, not through clever programs, not through strategic strategies, not through slick marketing campaigns. It was a work of God done through the Spirit of God empowering the people of God. And the book of Acts is all about what Jesus did. And Jesus did something too these first Christians, and he did something in these first Christians, and then he did something through these first Christians. And we, what Jesus did to them and in them and through them is exactly what we need Jesus to do in us and to us and through us if we are going to be the church, if we're going to be the followers of Jesus. At this most critical time in our history, in the history really of the world, we need Jesus to do to us and in us and through us what he did to them so that we can be the church in this broken world in which he's placed us. I have three big ideas that I want us to see as we work our way through this passage. And the first is this, if you're taking notes, that God doesn't do anything by chance. Look at verse 1 again. It says, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. God never does anything by chance. Nothing is ever left to accident with God. He is very deliberate. He's very intentional. He knows the end from the beginning, and he has set all things in order. So here's the big question. Why did God choose this day, the day of Pentecost, to pour out his Spirit? Well, in our Through the Bible study on Wednesday nights, as we've been working our way through the Bible... Several years ago, when we were in the Old Testament, we came there to the book of Leviticus, and we learned that there is a calendar of Jewish feasts. And we saw these feasts mentioned there in Leviticus chapter 23, and we noted that all of these feasts are pointing to the work of Jesus. In fact, Paul the Apostle put it this way in Colossians 2 verse 17, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance is of Christ. Think of it this way. Do shadows, or excuse me, shadows do not exist by themselves, do they? If you see a shadow on the ground, there must be a substance that is casting the shadow. Without the substance, there is no shadow. And all of these feasts that were a part of Israel's history and a part of their tradition were a shadow of things to come. And each of them pointed to the person of Jesus Christ and his ministry because Jesus is the substance. And when Jesus finally shows up on planet earth and begins his public ministry, all of this starts to make sense. Take the first feast, which was Passover. Passover commemorates that time when the children of Israel were living in bondage there in Egypt, and God had called on Pharaoh to let his people go, 
to set them free. But Pharaoh didn't want to do that. He hardened his heart against God. So God sent a series of plagues to come to get his attention, and he still continued to harden his heart. So the final plague was this angel of death was going to pass over. That's where you get the word. Pass over Egypt. And as he passed over, the firstborn in every single house there in Egypt was going to die, except for the houses that would take the blood of a lamb, the Passover lamb, and put it on the doorposts of their house. Only those houses, it would only be in those houses that the firstborn was going to live. That's exactly what happened. And it was that event that led Pharaoh to say, okay, I've had enough, get these people out of here. And for 2,000 years, the people of Israel celebrated Passover, commembering, looking back on how the, 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 that event took place that allowed them to be set free from the bondage of Egypt. But then Jesus shows up on the scene. And remember how John the Baptist announced him? John the Baptist says, Jesus was walking down into the Jordan River. John the Baptist says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so Passover pictures the death of Jesus as the Lamb of God who was come to set people free from a greater bondage than Egypt, to set them free from sin and death. And in 1 Corinthians 5 verse 7, Paul tells us that Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Now Passover was followed by the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And leaven in Scripture is equated to sin. The idea of that a little bit of leaven, it leavens the whole lump. It spreads through the whole loaf of bread. In the same way, sin is never dormant. It spreads. And so the Feast of Unleavened Bread pointed to Jesus as the sinless Son of God. And then there was the Feast of First Fruits. And the Feast of First Fruits, they brought in the first of their harvest and, brought and presented that to the Lord. And the Feast of First Fruits took place on the day after the Sabbath following Passover, which means that the Feast of First Fruits was always on the first day of the week. It was always on Sunday. Now, why is that significant? Why does it point to Jesus? Well, the Feast of First Fruits was looking forward to the resurrection of Christ. That when Jesus came out of the grave on that first Easter morning, it was the first day of the week following Passover. And Paul would write in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 20 that Jesus was the first fruits of a great harvest of those who through faith in him would rise from the grave never to die again. So after the Feast of Firstfruits, which signified and pointed to the resurrection of Jesus, came this feast, the Feast of Pentecost. It was also called the Feast of Weeks because Pentecost means 50th, and this feast was held, listen, 50 days after the Feast of Firstfruits. So what we're reading here in Acts chapter 2 happens 50 days exactly after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now the Jewish rabbis taught that the Feast of Pentecost commemorated the giving of the Old Covenant. 
That when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of stone, the the Ten Commandments, it was the commemoration of the Old Covenant, of the law being given to the people of Israel. And so they, they say Pentecost pointed to that particular day, and the message of the Old Covenant was due. Do this and you will live. Follow these commands and you will be blessed by God. But the problem was mankind couldn't consistently keep the commandments. And so because of that, mankind was doomed and damned. Because of our sin and our failure to keep the commandments of God. And Paul would write later in the book of Galatians that that was the whole purpose of the law. The whole purpose of the law was to show us that we couldn't keep it. To show us that we were sinners in need of a savior. But the prophets through the ages had spoke of a new covenant that was going to be set up. A new covenant that would be established when the Messiah came. And the message of the old covenant, yes, it was do, do this and live. But the message of this new covenant would be done. What was the victory cry that Jesus declared from the cross at Calvary? It is finished. It's complete. The work has been done. And Paul would write in the book of Romans, he would talk about a righteousness of God that was apart from the law. A righteousness of God that was available apart from following the law. It was available by putting your faith in Jesus Christ, putting your faith in the finished work of Jesus Now, the prophet Ezekiel, he spoke also of this new covenant and the promise that God was going to send. There in Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26, he says, And I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statues, and you will keep my statues and do them. And so Ezekiel was telling us that the defining mark of this new covenant would be the Holy Spirit being given to the people of God. That God had said, I'm going to place my spirit inside of you and he will cause you, he will empower you to follow after me. So prior to Jesus showing up, the Feast of Pentecost was commemorating the giving of the law and the old covenant, but it was always looking forward to this day and this event that we see here in Acts chapter 2 that would transpire exactly 50 days after the resurrection of Christ when God would pour out his spirits as a manifestation that the new covenant had begun. And the church of Jesus Christ was born. And the scriptures are so wonderful because on the day that that the old covenant was given, in, in Exodus chapter 32, we read there that on that day, Moses comes down with the two tablets, 3,000 people died. 3,000 people died because they were living in rebellion against God and they weren't listening to him. But on the day that the new covenant was established and the Holy Spirit is given, we read here in Acts chapter 2 that 3,000 people were saved. What a contrast. The law comes down and 3,000 die. 
The Holy Spirit comes down. The new covenant is given, and 3,000 are brought to life. And that's so meaningful in light of what Paul would write in 2 Corinthians 3 when he said this, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God who has made us competent to be ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter or the law, but of the Spirit. For the letter, the law kills, but the Spirit gives life. So the first thing that we see here is that God doesn't do anything by chance. This happens on the day of Pentecost precisely to fulfill Scripture, to make it obvious that this was in accordance with the plan of God. Here's big idea number two if you're taking notes. Obedience leads to blessing. We read here in verse 1 that as they were gathered together that they were all in one accord. And that doesn't mean a Honda, okay? It means that they were all gathered together in one heart. The idea is that they shared the same heart, the same love for Jesus. There was a unity, there was an interdependence that they had together upon the Lord. They were in the same place concerning their obedience to Jesus with one heart in their obedience to him. Because if you recall, if you look back in chapter 1, verse 4, it tells us there that Jesus commanded. Everybody say commanded. Amen. Jesus commanded them. It wasn't a suggestion. He commanded them to wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the Father, the Holy Spirit, who would come upon them. And quite frankly, that didn't make a whole lot of sense practically for them. To stay there in Jerusalem. It was dangerous. You see, there was still a lot of opposition. The religious leaders didn't like that they were claiming that Jesus had risen from the dead. So it was dangerous. There was opposition. It would have made a lot more sense for them to leave Jerusalem and head down to Galilee, where it's a lot more rural, less city. The quote-unquote religious police weren't there. But they stayed in Jerusalem because, don't miss this, Jesus told them to. He commanded them to, to wait. And so with one accord and one heart, that basically they were saying, out of our love for you and our belief in you, whatever you say, Jesus, that's what we're going to do. And so they're waiting, 120 people in an upper room, and that's when this happened. Look at verse 2. And suddenly, everybody say suddenly. suddenly. There came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Pause there and give me your attention. We see here that there were three manifestations that accompanied this outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. The first was, we read in verse 2, that there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. Now I want you to catch this. It wasn't that there was a rushing mighty wind. It wasn't like all of a sudden, you know, the wind is just blowing through that place like a Category 4 hurricane. No, no, no. 
It was the sound. Luke uses this same word sound in Luke 21, 25 to speak of the roar of the sea. And so that's what it sounded like, a roar of wind. And this is interesting because wind in Scripture is symbolic of the Holy Spirit. And so this sound from heaven let them know that something was happening here that was related to the person of the Holy Spirit. It was a manifestation of the Holy Spirit that was being poured out upon the disciples. The second manifestation of the Holy Spirit we see in verse 3. It says, there appeared to them divided tongues, key phrase here, as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. Again, this wasn't literal fire that was on top of each of their heads, but it looked like fire. And again, this is interesting because fire in the Old Testament was symbolic of God's presence. Remember when God called Moses to lead his people, he appeared to him, what? In a burning bush. Remember when it says that God led the people of Israel through the wilderness with a pillar of fire by night. God manifested his presence there before the people of Israel and the 450 prophets of Baal to show who was the real God. Remember when Elijah was having that little contest? The real God would bring down fire from heaven to consume the sacrifice. And that's exactly what God did. The fire was was the example, it was the symbol of his presence. And these divided tongues of fire were a manifestation of the presence of God, that he was moving and working and doing something fresh in his people. The third manifestation in verse 4 is that they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues. Now we're going to talk about the idea of speaking in tongues at a later study. But it's interesting to me how often, I want you to hear me on this, how often Christians get sidetracked by the manifestations. They get all focused on the sound of the wind and the tongues that look like fire and the fact that everyone was speaking in tongues. But I want you to catch this. None of those things are the focus. They served as a a purpose of making it very, very clear that there was no doubt that God was doing something here. But you know what the focus was? The focus was Jesus. The focus was the gospel. In fact, the rest of this chapter is going to focus on this sermon that Peter preaches that is all about Jesus. The focus in the book of Acts is not on signs and manifestations, but it's on what Jesus is seeking to do in and through his people. So the purpose of these manifestations of the Holy Spirit was to make it very, very evident that this was God, that God was doing something new and something fresh, not something weird, but something that was in accordance with his word. And you know, When the Holy Spirit has been poured out at various times in church history, starting with right here in the book of Acts, there have always been tangible manifestations that something was happening. It was God's way, always, of Him wanting us to know, this is me. I'm working here. 
And so throughout the history of the church, when God brings revival or when God brings a fresh awakening of some sort, there have been manifestations of the Holy Spirit and evidence that something unique and something powerful is taking place. In fact, I think back on the most recent revival that we've seen. We called it the Jesus People Movement in the 60s and 70s. One of the clear manifestations of the Holy Spirit in that outpouring of God was love. You see, our nation was divided because of the Vietnam War. And there were riots. And there were hippies standing against the establishment. Some of you were those hippies. And in the midst of the chaos and the turmoil that in many ways is similar to our day today, God pours out his spirit. And one of the most significant manifestations of the Holy Spirit at that time was the love of God bringing opposing sides together. I remember being at Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa for the Thursday night Bible study. And that sanctuary sat... It's 2,500 people. So it's, it's four times the size of this one. And it was jam-packed full of people. Standing room only. If you didn't get there 30 minutes ahead of time, you weren't getting a seat. And it wasn't just full of adults. It was full of hundreds, three, four, five hundred junior high and senior high students all sitting up and down the aisles on the floor and all up down here on the floor and some on the stairs. I, I was one of them sitting there. And it wasn't like a big concert was going on. It was one guy and a guitar and Pastor Chuck teaching an hour-long Bible study. And there's all these hippies who are anti-establishment sitting next to Guys in sport coats and women in dresses who were a picture of the establishment and they're sitting together and they're learning together and they're worshiping together and they're partaking of communion together. And then at the end of the study, some of you remember this, we'd get arm in arm and start swaying and singing the song, love, love. They'll know that we are Christians by our love. It was all these people who were vastly different socially, politically, economically, but there was this mutual love and mutual respect that were all brothers and sisters in the Lord. And that radical love and unity was one of the clear manifestations of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and that God was working. And it was so remarkable. And it was so evident, it was so clear that God was doing something very, very unique. And that God was doing something and bringing all these people together. And it was something that men and politicians could not do. Well, that's what's happening here in Acts chapter 2. In fact, I love what Martin Lloyd-Jones says in his book, Joy Unspeakable. Highly recommend this book. It's on the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's a little paperback. But he said this about this event. Something happened, and these guys all knew it happened. They had an experience. And everything else in Acts flows, follows this experience. Everything else that we're going to read in the book of Acts catapults from this moment. Now, here's how I want to land the plane today. I want us to consider for a few more minutes before we partake of communion together. I want us to consider the heart 
of those 120 men and women who were in that upper room on the day of Pentecost, those followers of Jesus. And I want to contrast them with the rest of the people who were in Jerusalem that day. You see, we read that this happened on the day of Pentecost, and Pentecost was one of the three pilgrim feasts there in Israel. And what that meant is there were these three feasts, Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. And the, every ma- Jewish male was required to bring his family to Jerusalem for these feasts every single year. So the population of Jerusalem normally was around 30,000 people. Well, at these feasts, the population would swell to over 150, sometimes 200,000 people that had come there for the city, for those feasts. And so these, all these people are here in Jerusalem for the, to celebrate the Feast of Pentecost. But here's what I want you to catch. Many if not most of them, are there out of tradition. They're out of obligation. They're there out of obligation. They're there out of religious ritual. They're there because they had to be there. It was their tradition. It was their law. They had to come. Many of them, they came because they enjoyed the idea of getting a break, seeing some friends and family, but they were there out of tradition. And listen, there are people today all over the world who are in church this morning just like you, but a lot of them are there out of tradition and religious ritual, out of obligation. It's become a religious activity for them. In fact, it's interesting to me how a lot of people who, when they become adults, we've seen this. It's a trend happening in the world today where young people who become adults, don't do this, you young people, they become adults, and when they become adults, they stop going to church. And what I've noticed is so many of them, when they get married and start having kids, they start coming back to church. And part of the reason is, is that it's part of their tradition. It's probably, you know, my parents brought me to church, so I should probably bring my kids to church. They, know, they need to know that God's important, and, and, and they're hoping that, you know, the influence of the church is going to somehow make their kids better people. And so they start coming back to church, but the problem is they live the, the rest of their lives, the rest of the week, exactly how they want to live. And not really being surrendered to God. Why? Because it's just a religious activity. It's just a tradition. And all over North County this morning, there are people who are in church for this reason. It's a tradition. It's a ritual. It's an obligation. And I hope that that is not your story as why you're here today. But if it is, we're so glad that you're here. And we believe God wants to do something in your heart. Okay? So, so many people who are in Jerusalem here in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost are there out of ritual or obligation. But catch this, there are 120 who are there for one reason. Because Jesus commanded them to wait there. To wait for something that God was going to do, this promise from God that the Holy Spirit was going to be poured out upon them. And they are there simply out of their love for Jesus. 
and they're convinced that he is the Messiah because he's risen from the dead. And listen to me. If you want to see miracles happen in your life, if you want to see the Lord work in in new and fresh ways in your life, learn this principle, do whatever Jesus is telling you to do. Whatever Jesus is telling you to do, you seek to do that. And when we do that in our lives, and when we do that in our marriages, and when we do that in our ministries, it puts us in a place for the Holy Spirit, the outpouring of God to happen in our lives. See, obedience leads to blessing because, and this is big idea number three, that God's commandments are God's enablements. God's commandments are God's enablements. And here's what I mean by that. When we take God's word at face value and move in obedience, God meets us with his grace and power to do what we thought was impossible to do. That's what's happening here on the day of Pentecost. These guys are waiting because Jesus told them to wait. And they love Jesus. They believe that he was risen. So like, okay, we're going to wait. Because he commanded us to do that. And he's given us this task to go into the world and make disciples and preach the gospel and stand against the opposition. But man, how are we going to do that? Well, we're going to wait because he told us to wait. And as they were moving in obedience, God pours his spirit upon them to do the very thing that they deemed impossible as he would empower them by his Holy Spirit. And we're going to see this principle play out over and over and over again where these guys are following and believing that God's commandments are God's enablements. We're going to see it all over the book of Acts. We see it all over the Bible. And I could give you tons of examples, but as we close this up today, I just want to give you three very quick ones. The first we see in John chapter 2. It's a familiar story. It's the wedding feast there in Cana. And, and, And you know, if you're familiar with that story, there's a problem. The problem was they ran out of wine. And that was a big deal in first century Jewish culture because wedding receptions in those days were a seven-day event. So to run out of wine was a big deal because they didn't have running water, so wine was a staple. And they ran out. What are we going to do? Well, Mary says, the Mary, the mother of Jesus, says to these servants, whatever Jesus tells you to do, you do that. Just listen to him. Now, get this. Jesus, at this point, he's unknown. He hasn't done any miracles. This is his first one. So there's no track record, but it says that these guys listen to him. And what does he say? Jesus points to six stone water pots that the text tells us are 20 to 30 gallons each. So we're talking, you know, close to 180 gallons of, of that, that could, these things could be filled up. And Jesus points to them and says, go fill those up with water. Water? Why? We don't need water. We need wine. But they did it. And it wasn't an easy task. It wasn't, get get this out of your first century mindset. It wasn't like they could just go grab the hose, turn it on, drink some iced tea, you know. No, they had to go to the well. They had to take a three-gallon bucket, run over to the well, put it down, draw it up, run back, pour it in. 180 gallons. That's 60 trips, folks. But they did it. They did it. In fact, they went overboard in their obedience because the text tells us that they filled it to the brim. They filled it to the brim. And then Jesus says, okay, 
They're like, okay, we're all done. They're all sweating, you know. We're all done. Now what? Take some out and take it to the master of the feast. They, they draw it out. It's still water. They're taking it to the master for him to take a sip. And somewhere from the midst of, they're pulling it out of the, the, the pot and taking it to the master. They're believing it's going to turn to wine before it hits his lips. Because they were believing and they were doing what Jesus asked them to do. And a miracle was the result. And this is the first miracle that Jesus did. It's at a wedding feast. And I think that was to put his stamp of approval on marriage. I think it was to communicate his heart for married couples. And listen, you want to see God work miracles in your marriage? Do whatever he says for you to do as a husband. Do whatever he says for you to do as a wife. Quit making excuses of why you can't do this and just do what Jesus is calling you to do, believing that as you step out in obedience, he's going to meet you with his grace and his power to follow through and do what you might now think, that's just impossible for me to love her in that kind of way. Or for me to respect him and support him in that type of way. It's asking yourself, what is Jesus saying to me right now as a wife? What is he saying to me right now as a husband? And I, by his grace, I'm going to step out on obedience and do that, believing that he's going to strengthen me and meet me. Second example, Luke chapter 5. Jesus is there on the shores of Galilee, and he's preaching. A couple of his friends, Peter, James, and John... And Andrew, they, they had been fishing all night, another unsuccessful fishing trip. They hadn't caught anything. So they're there, and they're putting all their stuff away. They're cleaning their nets, and the crowd is pressing in upon Jesus so much so that he says to Peter, he says, Peter, can I borrow your boat? Peter says, sure. So he gets in the boat. He pushes all a bit and continues to give his Bible study. When he's done, Peter, or excuse me, Jesus says to Peter, hey, Peter, let's go fishing, Let's, let's put the boats out and let's throw out the nets into the deep and let's catch some fish. And Peter's first response is negative. Peter says, Lord, we have fished all night and caught nothing. We've already tried this. It didn't, it's not a day. The fish aren't biting today. Now, Peter could have said, Lord, our nets are already clean it's really be really an inconvenient for us to break them all out again. They're all clean and put away. He could have said, and Lord, it's the wrong time anyway to, to fish. Everybody knows that you don't fish in the early morning because the sunlight scares the fish. That's why we fish at night, Lord. That's why we, you know, in the dark. He could have said, you know, Jesus, you obviously don't know anything about fishing because we don't fish in the deep, we fish in the shallow waters. He could have said, Jesus, you know what? You're a carpenter and a preacher. I won't tell you how to preach if you don't tell me how to fish. He could have said all that, but he didn't. He didn't. What Peter says, he says, yeah, Lord, we fished all night and didn't catch anything, but nevertheless... At your word, we'll throw out the net. You know, it's okay to have conversations with God. 
as long as you don't end your conversation with, Lord, I tried that and it didn't work. When he's telling you to do something, you follow it up with, nevertheless, at your word, I am going to do that. And they were obedient to the word of Jesus, and he did something that blew their minds. They, they had the biggest catch of fish that they had ever had. Some of you have been so busy telling the Lord why something can't happen, because it's inconvenient, why something doesn't make sense, or why it can't work, and you just need to do what he is telling you to do. And the miracle that needs to happen in your life isn't going to happen until you quit saying why this is a bad idea or why this can't work. And you say, nevertheless, because God, this is what your word says, I am going to walk in that trusting that you're going to supply me with the power to carry that out. Last analogy. This one's maybe my favorite. Mark 3, Jesus is in a synagogue. There's a guy there who has a withered hand. That means his hand's all shriveled up. And everybody's wondering, is Jesus going to heal this guy? And the way that Jesus does it is so interesting. He walks up to the guy and he says, hey, stretch forth your hand. It's all shriveled up. Now that guy could have said, what? Man, you're mean. You're, you're asking me to do it. I can't do this. Look at my hand. It's all shriveled up. But when Jesus said to him, stretch forth your hand, he believes. And he acts on the words of Jesus. Because God's commandments are God's enablements. And it says that that man began to stretch forth his hand. And as he did, his hand was made whole. We see, we'll see this principle all over the book of Acts. That the followers of Jesus moving in obedience to the words of Jesus, even when it doesn't make sense. And he fills them with power and the miraculous happens. But what I want you to catch today is it starts with this 120 people gathered together there in Jerusalem, not out of tradition, not out of ritual, but out of obedience and love to Jesus. And this outpouring of the Holy Spirit is the result. And so I ask you this question today, church. Why are you here? Why are you here today? Is it out of tradition? Is it out of religious ritual? Is it just an obligation? Or is it because you are so in love with Jesus that you want to do what he said when he said, hey, don't forsake the assembling together with other believers. Some do that, but don't you do that. And you're come together because you want to meet him and you want him to meet with you. And I want to encourage you, let that be the heartbeat of your life as you move forward that it's a sense of just saying Jesus I want whatever you're telling me to do in my life in my marriage whatever you're telling me to do in, in some opportunity to step out in faith God I want to do that because I love you and I believe that you are risen and that you're the king and you deserve all of my heart and all of my worship and and all of my following after you Amen? Amen? Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you so much that your commandments are our enablements. That as we just seek to move in obedience to your word, that you meet us. 
with your power and your grace to do the very things that we would think would be impossible to do. And so, God, I pray right now that you would just meet us here in this moment. 